Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Cognitive Dissidence. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm a partner and the director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments. Joining me on the podcast today is Jordi Visser. Jordi is the president and chief investment officer of Weiss Multistrategy Advisors. Uh, Jordi is a friend of Cousin Marco's, and Cousin Marco said that I would love Jordi and that we should have him on the podcast. And here he is. This is one of my favorite episodes, actually, that we've recorded. Uh, Jordi, in addition to all of the things he does as president and chief investment officer at Weiss, uh, he also has a video series, Real Time with Jordi Visser, and is a lead contributor to their podcast, In Search of Green Marbles, which this episode will be cross-posted on. So we're happy to have him on and happy to invite him back again soon. I really enjoyed his perspective and this conversation. Um, Listeners, if you have not rated or reviewed the podcast, this is my um, the point in the podcast where I ask you to do so or to share it with your friends. Uh, you can also write to me at jacob at cognitive.investments with any questions, comments about the podcast itself or about cognitive investments. Um, last but not least, if you are a Perch Pod listener and you are listening to this on the Perch Pod, uh, please remember that at the end of the August, at, at the end of this month, August, we're going to be transitioning to where we're only posting on the Cognitive Dissidence channel. Uh, so please just keep that in mind and sign up for Cognitive Dissidence if you haven't already. So, without further ado, let's get to the conversation with Jordi. I'll also just note we recorded on Thursday, August fourth. This will come out about a week after we recorded. Nothing too time sensitive in here, but if anything happens in between now and then, that's what's going on. So, cheers. See you out there. Cognitive Investments LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Cognitive and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. For additional information, please visit our website at www.cognitive.investments. The information provided is for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. Jordi, it's so great to have you here. Thank you for making some time for us. Jacob, I'm uh, happy I got the invite, and I'm uh, I'm glad to be here and uh, have a nice discussion. Um, I thought we would start with inflation. Um, the front uh, headline of the New York Times this morning. We're recording August fourth. This will come out in about a week, folks. So if we're a week behind on things, that's why. But I actually think that's helpful. We're not just knee jerk reacting to things, but. Um, Headline in New York Times this morning, a Fed pivot not yet, policymakers suggest, as rapid inflation lingers. I saw that the Central Bank of Brazil also hiked interest rates another 50 basis points today. And in their release, the thing that uh, struck me was that they said that it looked like they were going to have to hike a bunch more because of inflation expectations. You can find similar views kind of throughout the world right now. I know that you have a differentiated take, so why don't I lob up that that grapefruit of a baseball for you and see if you can knock it out of the park for our listeners. <laughs> All right. Well, a little backdrop on on, on something different. So I uh, I have openly and since I, I I do have a podcast, I've been very outspoken over the last couple of years about uh, the Fed making a mistake that inflation was much more structural. And coming into the year, I believe that inflation would. Uh, not only continue higher, but stay higher for longer. And, you know, I have a framework that I deal with with macro, which starts with what's the baseline for everything. And just to kind of put some stats out on it, there's only been five other times that year over year CPI, 
uh, has been above five and a half percent since 1950. So you're only dealing with six times. And when we peak historically, the five times when you hit that peak, uh, the average decline is about 50 percent in in year over year CPI. All of them a year later were down. Every one of them. Um, some of them more than 100% of where it was. So the one thing about inflation to start off with is historically when you have rises, they're temporary for a variety of reasons. And some of them we've seen this year, which is you have demand destruction at some point, which we've seen. You add in the Fed has been more aggressive than any time since the 1980s, aside from maybe 1994. Uh, the jawboning that went on and the uncertainty that it created has slowed down things uh, in the U.S. significantly. And then you mentioned that globally this has been a problem. So you've seen uh, growth slow down. And when growth slows down, you want to see if anything else is happening to show that it's going to bring inflation down. And one of the most important things is that gas at the pump has been a, one of the most important parts of driving this um, inflation rate higher. And gas at the pump has gone from $5.02 uh, in early June. And as of today, uh, it's $4.13 uh, across the country. And the gas futures, uh, which lead where get retail gas at the pump is, they have another 40 to 60 cents lower uh, at current prices. And oil yesterday just broke through the 200-day moving average. So you start with uh, the history of inflation is that once you make a peak and next week we get the, the, the inflation data for CPI, year over year is supposed to be at 8.8 .8 after 9.1 and gas at the pump continues to move lower. And so you're, you're at a point now where almost all economists are forecasting that CPI at the end of this year will be closer to 6% than 9%. So I think we're at peak inflation. And this is before we get into some of the structural issues that I think are more advanced than they were at the periods that took longer times, which I'll talk about. But that's kind of the story behind why I think now people should be talking more about uh, disinflation and a, a resumption of that trend that has existed really since 1980. Yeah, and, and I, we're going to hit energy in, in a little bit here, listeners, um, more directly. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about those structural forces and a little bit of devil's advocate because I, I agree with your view, but I challenged myself before this podcast to try and, and figure out the counter argument to it. And this may come when we talk about China too. But um, there was an interesting chart I saw from Philip Heimberger on Twitter. Philip, sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. Um, my family's from Austria, but that doesn't mean I can pronounce your name correctly. Um, and he had this really interesting chart that showed sort of what you were talking about in terms of sort of demand side inflation has been going down. So whether it's energy consumption, demand destruction, all that stuff's been happening on the demand side. Supply side is still there. Um, and supply side maybe comes down to China, COVID, the, the global macro environment. There, There is sort of a, a stubborn supply problem there, I, I think, a little bit. So how would you respond to that and, and maybe take us through some of those structural forces that you think will either bring that down or, or, or you think is going to get us to that disinflationary environment? And, and Jacob, as we get to know each other, um, I am a keep it simple, stupid person. And so this is my keep it simple, stupid um, person attempt because I'm, I, I, I'm not a fan of economists, nothing against the person you reference or nothing against any economists out there. Um, and that's because the job that I have at, at, as an asset manager is to try to figure out where asset prices are going to go. And the one thing I know 
is that if you would have told me there'd be a pandemic, earnings would collapse, um, GDP would go would be the worst year since the Great Depression, I wouldn't say the stock market would go higher. So one of the things that people have to understand when they go through this is I don't believe in math. Uh, or any kind of like numbers that will give you the answer to anything important. Um, I do believe they're important to know what's behind them, but it's the rate of change or the second derivative that I focus on. So let's go through the supply side and start talking somewhat about the second derivatives and data that's coming out now. If you go back and you said, what was the way that we would ever get CPI up to the levels it is across the globe? You would say, um, okay, we'd have a pandemic, we'd print enormous amounts of trillions of dollars globally, people would have iPhones, which would still allow them to buy things, we'd have Carvana, which would allow people to buy cars while sitting at home, we'd have Zillow, which would allow people to buy houses while they're sitting at home, and all of that occurred without people going to work, so there was no supply side. So what he wrote about is exactly true, which is the supply side has been bad. Um, freight rates have been coming down now for six months. China just reopened from a lockdown situation, which was fairly extreme in the April-May period. So you're only now starting to get China uh, on more of a reopening trend. And China is obviously the producer for the world on, on, on a grand scale. Uh, the supplier delivery times with inside the isms, not just the PMIs in the US, but the PMIs globally, uh, all of them are coming down. So we just had a, a huge decline in the service and the uh, PMIs for the US, the price is paid. Supplier delivery times, as I mentioned, have come down. So the bottlenecks are easing. So are they back to where they should be? No. But again, what markets look at is the rate of change and the rate of change is getting better. So it's not a question of do the supply uh, constraints still remain. The point is, are they lessened from where they were? And the answer is absolutely. Hmm. What other, um, let's get into some of those other structural factors you were talking about, though, that, that make you think that we're headed towards um, a, a sort of deflation environment. Yeah, I started really in June, I started tweeting about um, the fact that you, you really have to remember the structural issues that cannot be moved. So you can print money. That's a cyclical thing. Then you can shrink money, which is what's now happening. Money supply is now going down. So you can do those things and you can get a temporary period of inflation. But the structural forces, which will keep it lower, um, demographics, the world's not getting younger. Um, and especially in the countries that are, are uh, obviously consumed with the most debt, Europe, China, the US, Japan, uh, the demographics are, are just getting worse. If you go back to the 1970s when we had inflation, I think the median age of a person in the United States was somewhere in the in the mid 20s, 26 to 27, and now it's in the high 30s. So people are getting older in the country, and when you get older, your spending habits and your 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 fear of the future becomes much different than when you're in the 70s. The second thing is debt. And I gradually mentioned the debt situation, but what people have to remember about COVID is we didn't just print money, we took out debt to print the money. So debt to GDP has exploded. Um, in the 1970s, global debt to GDP was about 100%. Now it's two, over 250%. So when you have that much debt, when assets go down, the debt starts to become more important because the asset side of the equation is going down, but the debt side is not going down with it, not at the pace it did. So in the first half of the year, when you had stocks and bonds having historic losses, uh, and now you've got the housing market, which is starting to see weakness, 
the debt stuff starts to become more important. Then you've got exponential innovation, which has not ended. So I don't know why people, people were talking about this last year as to why inflation would be transitory. The arguments you would read in Bloomberg every day were, well, we don't have to worry about it. exponential innovation, software, it's still going to keep us in this lower thing. Well, the reality is it is still pressurized in terms of pushing it down. And we are at an accelerant uh, point of technology where artificial intelligence is still in the early stages. That's going to be more going forward. Nanotechnology is still there. The internet of things. I can go on and on, but you really have a situation that on everything technology-wise, you're getting more and more advanced on that side. And then finally, a new one, which I know we'll, we'll end up talking about um, more, and it's something that I'm about to write a paper on uh, to come out in September, and I'll be doing a podcast on this. But this is my obsession with longevity hitting an exponential speed point too, and that longevity is going to become a major issue. And the reason that's important towards the deflation side is it's one thing to have pension funds that have huge liabilities uh, and old people that are you know, living a life in there. But as they continue to get older and as we extend that, you have more and more of a situation where it's going to be a deflationary pressure that I don't think people have factored in. Did you um, – this is apropos – well, not of nothing, but sort of tangentially related. Did you see that um – news report just this morning about how I think it was a Virginia state pension fund or something like that was going to go into crypto farming in order to get yield. They'd approve that as an investment because they were trying to increase growth prospects for the pension fund. It just, it's stuck in my mind based on what you were saying about aging demographics and thinking about changing the psychology of older investors. I, I was at a, uh, I was at a conference for a group called clock tower in Austin in March. And well, you know, Marco, Marco, that, that was at Marco's conference. Um, and, that was brought up in a car ride I was taking to a crypto <laughs> speaking where someone was saying, hey, has anyone done anything here with uh, with uh, the crypto market in terms of yield enhancement strategy? So, yes, it does not surprise me that that is going on. I also, while, while you were uh, mentioning specifically about the 70s um, and espe especially the debt part of the conversation, I just looked it up while we were talking real fast. I mean, LBJ kind of got slammed because he did the Vietnam War and the Great Society at the same time. And oh, all of this government spending, all this debt, he increased debt by about 13%, which was double apparently what JFK did, but was less than a third of what Nixon did. And every single president since LBJ increased um, U.S. debt by over 30%. So I'm sure LBJ is listening to this podcast in his ranch up in the sky and saying, I didn't even know that I could have done this with debt. If I could have, I never would have been in the problems. Uh, I never would have had the problems that I would have politically um, either way. So I, I think the demographics um, part is, is interesting. And the technology part of this is interesting too. And this might be a segue into energy itself. I, I was reading a really excellent paper. I'll, I'll send it to you. Um, it was on scholars stage um, and it, it was sort of trying to get a, it, it was attacking this Peter Thiel idea that we've, we're, we're in a sort of tech, we haven't been in a tech innovation environment for 50 years. We're just sort of iterating on things that have been around for 50 years. And the point of the article was sort of saying, well, there is something to that, like real explosive tech invasion, uh, invasion, innovation, you can tell China, Taiwan is on my mind. Um, innovation is when you go from horse and buggy to a car in less than 10 years. When you go from, you know, steam and so we're, now we're doing oil out of the ground and all of this is happening in 10 years. And we haven't had that sort of energy transition technology burst happen in a long time. So I don't know exactly what the question is there, but um, it, what do you think about that narrative on technology and how that feeds into the inflation environment and how we're thinking about this going forward? Well, I guess the, the cynical side of me, before I get into more of a uh, 
that's what's hopefully a smart answer. Um, anyone who doesn't believe that innovation has accelerated, I, I don't even know what to say. Um, it's literally like you could not have have looked back when you know, I graduated high school in 1985, and to think about what's happened technologically since then, and the ability of having a, a supercomputer in my hand, uh, I agree somewhat with the math. Uh, portion that this is just Moore's law. But the part I do agree with is the frictions of opening up things. We should already have autonomous driving, but we've got friction for it. Um, a great book for this, uh, which again, I'll get into the longevity thing, is Walter Isaacson's uh, latest book called Codebreaker. And I've recommended it to everyone I can think of to read, not just if they're interested in CRISPR and longevity, but also in what in, in what you're describing, which is what prevents um, acceleration in, in health span. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the fact that scientists are fighting with each other and hiding their their information to try and get the Nobel Prize. And that comes mm. up in this book. And so it's not in everyone's best interest to share the information. Uh, it's one of the weaknesses. Um, COVID sped up people working together. And that also get brought up in the book in like a Manhattan-like project where everyone came together. So I think things would be fur much further ahead if every single you know person running a company opened up their IP to everyone else around the world, that obviously doesn't happen because people are trying to make money. They're trying to win Nobel Prizes. So I do agree that it's going slower than it otherwise should, but I don't agree that it's not accelerating or going at a fast pace. And I think with, uh, with aging and with health span, that's probably the place where people are going to recognize it the most. And I think the next 20 years of that will be uh, one of the most dramatic we've seen in, in, in the history of the earth. Hmm. Well, let's not leave then. Then Let, let's talk a little bit about about that before we turn to maybe energy and China stuff. So um, talk to me a little bit about why you think that and what the underlying technology is there that has gotten you so excited. Well, first of all, um, just from a personal basis, and, and, and I'll, I'll be honest with this. I, so I've, I've been obsessed with the concept of anti-aging since I turned 30. Um, and I, I forget who gave me a book, but it was a book that was given to me on the concept of, hey, you're 30 now. And this is, the, this is when muscle atrophy sets in and all <laughs> kinds of stuff. And I, I don't have a background in science. I'm definitely not a, a doctor. Um, I seldom go to the doctors. I've never had a surgery in my lifetime. But I started to read up at that point. And the one thing I took from the book was that it was a good idea for me to start collecting data on myself at an early age. And so I started getting uh, a physical and blood work done every year from the age of 30, uh, just so I would have the data, which I, I still have. And along the way, every year, I would do something differently on, uh, on my body based on some science I'd read, some research. Most of it had to do with the normal stuff, which has to do with nutrition, with dieting, with exercise. There'd be new reasons. And remember, when, when I was 30 years old, you're talking about uh, a time when eggs were still supposed to be really bad for you. Uh, <laughs> so we didn't really know a lot. Uh, that was before, you know, eating bacon every day to lose weight was a diet that came out when I came back from Brazil. So it's not like we've been really smart on on healthcare. But one thing about healthcare that is is obvious is it's reactive. So everything that we do in this country is symptom based. Oh, okay, you have this. Okay, I'll give you a drug for it. And it's a pharmaceutical based world. And it wasn't until I turned forty that a doctor said, "Well, I need you to go on medicine." And I said why? He said, well, your blood pressure is finally at a level 
where uh, you're in what we, we call hypertension. And I went, my blood pressure is the same as it was when I was 30. They went, well, we've changed the levels. I went, oh, okay, so you guys changed the levels. So I was fine before, now I'm not fine, and now I need to take a pill. Hmm. And you want me to take a pill every day for the rest of my life, which is something my body cannot use except for this one symptom. And you've decided that by meeting me one time, taking one blood pressure reading, and then looking at the chart and deciding that I need this. And I said, I won't do it. And I said, how about you do this? I'm healthy on every other metric. You tell me what I need to do to make the blood pressure go down. And if you can, and I'll do it. I'm a very disciplined person. And that's what the doctor said. Said, if you lose weight, if you change this, if you do this, you do this. I said, all right, I'll be back in three months. I'll do all those things. <laughs> and I did. And I lost 20 pounds and it was done in a very healthy manner. I exercised. I changed my diet. I, I reduced saturated fat. I did a whole bunch of things. And I went in. Blood pressure reading was exactly the same. And I said, so this means you actually don't know what you're doing. And so you can imagine the argumentative side. And the reason I bring this up is every one of my family members is on blood pressure medicine. Every one of them, in my opinion, is aging at a pace that is faster than they should be. Hmm. And I believe 100% in the belief that every toxin that enters your body interrupts the cell reproduction process, which is part of aging. So I just became interested in this. And what I wanted to do each year was learn more about it. And it's led to something, um, and I'll give you a chance so I don't monologue here because there's a lot in here. Uh, but it was my skepticism that we actually understood anything at the health side of what made people age. And aging, as David Sinclair, who wrote Lifespan, said, aging is a disease and it should be categorized as a disease. And if you think about what that means, that's the key for everything is to identify why we're aging. And the only way to be able to expand, expand health span, which means living a healthy life. So lifespan is just living a miserable life, but you're getting your life longer. Mm -hmm. Health span is the ability to live a life where your healthy life is longer. To be able to understand how to do that, you have to go to the root of the problem. The root of the problem is to understand why we age in the first place. And we only could figure that out beginning really in 2003, because that's when we, the Human Genome Project was able to sequence the first human uh, DNA and to be able to start to get down to the molecular level. So all of that was interesting, and that's kind of where it started and when I became more interested every day in reading stuff on it. Hmm. Well, I, I wish I could tell you that things had gotten better since since you were a young whippersnapper telling your doctor what was up. Um, but in my own personal experience, nothing has changed. Uh, I was, uh, what, two years ago, I went to a doctor's office because I've been doing the physical thing like you. I wanted data sort of going back. I had a similar moment in my life. Um, I had one year where my cholesterol was high. And, you know, I was in my early 30s and the doctor was like, all right, well, maybe we need to think about some some cholesterol medicine. And I sort of looked at the doctor. I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to cut back on the charcuterie boards during the week and I'm going to redouble my gym efforts. And maybe I'll try this plant-based <laughs> diet that has Chris Paul running around like he's the point God again. And I'll see what happens. And I waited 12 months, not three months. And I went back in and boom, suddenly my cholesterol was, was super low. You also said about eggs. I wish I, I need to have an indicator for when eggs are considered good and when they're considered bad. Cause I feel like it goes up and down and maybe it has something to do with the price of egg futures or something. Somebody must be jostling that based on the research that comes out um anyway but at, that, that that's totally separate um we can get there some other time my egg conspiracy theories but 
So talk to me about, because I know we were going to talk about mRNA, and, and that's one yep. of the things that is kind of really focused on. So draw a bridge to, for me from this focus on health and longevity also to mRNA, because I think it's it's probably, well, correct me if I'm wrong, it's probably more difficult to be investing in longevity right now. Or Am I right about that, or am I wrong about that? Are there actually ways to express that? Yeah, I, so one thing I would say is if you think about what happened in software um, as an industry, once software became obvious, which really, um, honestly, it, the app store was kind of the accelerant for this whole thing, because then all of a sudden companies, you know, Uber, Amazon, Amazon shopping, once you had the app store, it really allowed it to explode. So the question is, what would happen in longevity uh, with all of this technology? And I think the mistake people do is they're trying to pick the company that'll have the uh, the best thing. And I think this really, you know, whether it's life sciences, whether it's uh, biotechnology, all of these things are going to do well. The market as a whole should do well, because I can't think of a more euphoric thing than people thinking they found the fountain of youth. Hmm. Uh, but that's what I do think those would go. Before we get into that, let, let, let me, let me, because um, there is a part of me that I do think if I make this logic of what people should be doing, since you and I both keep our analytics, so I have an aura ring um, and I wear an iWatch. And the only reason I wear an iWatch is because I want to collect more algorithms and apps measuring my blood oxygen level, measuring my, my uh, resting heart rate, my HRV, all of that stuff. But the aura ring in particular has one thing. Uh, the most important connection for people to realize, and as a type A person who understood why I have high blood pressure. So I've studied this more and more. I do my own regular um, uh, blood pressure tests uh, at least once a week. I'll do five in a day, just at different times and notice the patterns because I'm a pattern person. Hmm. Uh, because in theory, what a sleep score does is it get, it's like a physical every single day. So every day when I wake up, the number one thing that I do without question is I look at what my score is for the night. And since the day I got this, which was just in early 2020 during COVID. And the reason I got it is because the NBA had just switched their, their players from whoop onto Oura Ring. And the reason was because the Oura Ring was warning them when people were about to get COVID. Hmm. Uh, so it was a predictive side. So the wearable business, which is brand new, is an early detection, but also a data collection on the health of your heart. It's like a daily physical. And this wearable thing has become so important to me that I think everyone should have it because if you just go into Google and say, what is the number one sign of health? You're going to get a bunch of different answers. But if you type in sleep score, health span, you will see study after study that if your sleep score is high on a consistent basis, that is an indication of your overall health. So as a type A person who runs an asset management company, I would travel to Asia a lot. I would go to mm. Europe a lot. I would go do this. And that meant, okay, I wasn't getting good sleep. I was irregular because if you fly to Asia, it's not just you're on a different time zone there, but you're in, you're, you got 13 hours, 14 hours in the air. And then you come back, you've got to do the recovery there. That's like a full month of recovering and your sleep goes down. And every day that your sleep is not good, you're aging faster. So you want to have steady sleep. I listened to a podcast with Novel Ravikant who's a brilliant guy out on the West Coast. And I'm a keep it simple, stupid person with people say things that have changed their life. And one of the things he said was, yeah, I stopped going to dinners and I stopped going to cocktail parties because I wanted to work out every morning at five o'clock because that's when I started to feel the best. Hmm. 
I tried it and I started realizing that if I went to bed every day between 9.30 and 10 and I got up and worked out every day before I went to work, my health score was going higher. My sleep score went higher. If I stopped eating after 7.30, my sleep score got better. If I started using a breathing device, which I do every day to kind of expand my lung capacity and deal with uh, getting more oxygen into my body, having the data real time. It's like a P&L in my business, but it's also like a grade that you're getting to know where you are, the progress report. So by having the wearables, this is the single most important thing for the predictive side of stopping people from aging. Because if you do the right things, eating, uh, nutrition, or I'm sorry, eating, uh, exercise, and sleeping, you will end up in a scenario where your sleep score will be higher, and that's an overall representation of your health. So that is the first thing. Before we start getting into the science of how we're going to extend people's lives, um, wearables is one of the most important things for predictive. And, I, and I'll end it with one more thing. That is what we're doing right now with reading our body. Um, I remember five years ago, I went out to Silicon Valley, which I do occasionally to go look at the, the newest technologies coming out by uh, the private, uh, by venture places. And one of the most interesting things was I went to healthcare ones and I saw a smart toilet. And this was a scenario that, you know, you go to the bathroom every day. Well, you can get your DNA then sequenced every single day, your feces and urine analysis every single day and have it sent to your phone. So all of this stuff is coming out, and this would mean that you would see changes in your body the second that you have them, and that is early detection is the number one thing for allowing people to not have to go on drugs, but also not die suddenly. So by that alone, you will extend longevity. But these are the kinds of technologies and the merging between technology and the body that are becoming more important. I'm I'm totally with you on that, and I'm going to go out and buy like half of the things that you just talked about, but... <laughs> I, I wonder the psychology of a normal person. Do, do you think that normal non type A people who aren't obsessed about these things like you and me would actually do this? A, a colleague or friend of mine, um, one of his investment philosophies is never short fat people, um, which has yes. worked out for him very well over time. I live in a state where almost half the population is morbidly obese. I mean, I'm in Louisiana and that's not, I, I'm not trying to shit on Louisiana. Like if you look yep. around the world, like people are getting fatter all the time. Um, the pandemic is an excellent example of people not doing basic things to protect their health. Like I, I was on a plane yesterday from, from Milwaukee back here to new Orleans. Nobody's wearing, I'm the only person wearing a mask and I'm getting looked at like I'm some kind of medieval sea creature for, for having a mask on my face. Um, and yes. it's, you know, I, I, I don't know, like, do, do you think people are actually going to do or take up the things that you're talking about outside of the sort of weird quirky personality type that you and I share? Well, this gets back into rate of chains. And Jacob, one of the things that's funny about these, do I think tomorrow everyone will be skinny? No chance in hell. Do I think in 10 years? No chance in hell. Do I think we're hitting an inflection point where people are getting healthier? Yes, I do. Um, hmm. I think COVID had a huge impact on, on some people. And so if you take however many billion, hundreds of millions of people that are overweight or obese in the country, do I think every year there'll be less people? Yes, I do. Um, and the reason I do is because I do think people, I do think they want to live longer. I think healthcare is getting to be so expensive for people mm. that they don't really have a choice. Uh, I can tell you that, you know, I grew up a blue collar kid. One of my friends is a beer distributor. Go look at what's happening to beer sales in the country. I mean, they're collapsing. Um, people are, kids are not as in love with Budweiser as their parents were. Uh, 
their parents are getting older and nothing makes you want to get less obese than if you get to 70 and the doctor says you're going to die unless you lose weight. So you see more people at older ages going out. So I do believe the rate of change is happening partly because of the demographic situation. The technology combined will do it. But there's another part of this that I've studied that I think people are going to start to understand. When you get to the molecular level, we've also been able to examine the microbiome. And if you haven't heard about the mind-gut connection, it's actually a fascinating thing. When you eat bad food, you're taking in toxins into your body, processed food or food that's not organic, the pesticides, it goes in your body. And then you've got this bad bacteria in there. And the cravings that you have are actually coming from your gut. And it's they want that food. They want the sugar. So if you put lots of sugar in your body, it's a self-reinforcing thing. And that's why people are getting heavier. As someone who has eliminated processed foods to almost a 99% level, doesn't eat fatty red meat, hasn't had bacon in three years and, and you know doesn't want to have it. I'm not extreme. Um, I eat everything. I eat steak. I do whatever I want. I just eat mainly vegetables, a lot of fish, and then have replaced most of the really heavy saturated fat with leaner fats. Um, I think that has made me less desiring those things. Uh, I didn't think I could get off steak the way I did. I have hamburger. I have a hamburger like once a month. It's still one of my favorite things to eat. Uh, but I think by reducing it, it wasn't meant to lose weight. I did it because I wanted to get rid of the cravings. And by getting rid of the cravings, it worked. It's always fascinating to me if you meet someone who's a vegetarian, but they were a meat eater. And this is my, my oldest daughter is a vegetarian or a pescatarian. If she has meat, she gets sick. Why does she get sick all of a sudden when she was eating it before? And people don't ever ask the question the same way they don't ask the question, what are cravings? Mm -hmm. Cravings and getting sick from stuff is directly related to the ability to digest the food, which gets into if you eat something all the time, you'll be able to digest the food. If you don't eat it ever, and then you try to eat it, you don't have the enzymes to digest the food. We're learning more about this. And this will help us with a tremendous amount of things because human beings have been ingesting too many toxins now for the last 30 years. It's directly related to the rise in so many diseases that have happened that are based on inflammation, but also things that have you know, ruined kind of people's DNA uh, through having pesticides. You've probably seen Roundup as this. All of these things have kind of happened. And so by studying the microbiome, I think you're going to be able to actually change the way people crave foods. And that's some of the science that's also coming as well. Hmm. Um, does this mean that because I didn't eat bacon for the first quarter century of my life because I was keeping kosher that I can now make up for lost time and just eat all the bacon? Do I get a do I get a bank and reserve account or something? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd go slow though. So uh, this is an interesting thing. You've, I'm sure you've heard the rise of probiotics, like people taking probiotics. Yes, my wife is is part of the movement, as it were. Okay, so um, your, your wife and I can have a conversation. She should not be taking that stuff. Uh, what she should be doing is having fermented foods. And yeah, well, she's, she, I, I should say she's more about like, let's pickle things and let's do all this other stuff okay. to get the probiotic stuff. She's yeah, not and, and to get the probiotics that way is the way to, you. it won't eliminate the toxins, but what it will do is if I lived in Maine, I'd have less toxins in my body than living in New York because New York has more people, more humans, more dirt, more pollution. And if I was in Maine, I'd be having more good bacteria from the nature and from this, the, 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 the animals that are living up there. Well, the same thing goes for the water. The water is cleaner in Maine. That's why you have Poland Spring. You don't see any New York City spring you know, water bottles out there anywhere. Uh, so the antitoxin side is if you can decrease the amount of toxins you're taking in and you can increase the good toxins, the 
the good bacteria through fermentation, you kind of balance your body out and it just helps kind of your immune system. And I think people are learning more about it. I only talked about it because whenever there's a movement like that, we're all of a sudden probiotics. Okay. That's something that's just happened. Why did it just happen? Well, you have to have some science behind it. Uh, and the science is the microbiome again. Yeah. Um, let's kind of turn, I mean, and by the way, you know, here in new Orleans, I, the water is something I worry about all the time. I mean, they, they call this stretch of Louisiana cancer alley for a reason. Um, <laughs> and I have to be fastidious about a lot of that, but, um, but I don't want to forget the MRNA and CRISPR thing. Cause I, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tee you up right here with that, which is, um, I, I, and I, maybe I'll send this, I'll put a lot of links in the description here because as I thought you're, this is a thought provoking podcast, but I found a study right when COVID came out and we were all stuck in our homes and I just started reading everything I possibly could about viruses and vaccines and things like that. And there's a study from the NIH, I think it's 0506. I'll put the link in the podcast description where it's one of those studies where every once in a while you come across a study that just, it nailed it. It predicted literally everything. And because it was one in a million different studies in the NIH website, probably nobody like, you know, read it or paid much attention to it. But this paper, uh, the point of this paper was we're going to see an increase in diseases that jump from animals to human beings. Here's the heat map of where it's going to happen because of climate change and rising temperatures in these particular regions. This is the place. These are the places where it's most likely to happen. Wuhan was on the map. And we're going to see this sort of more over time. And we saw this with COVID. We had SARS and swine flu before that. We've already got now monkey pox and Marburg virus and all of this stuff kind of percolating. I think people I think the psychology of people is that they want COVID-19 to be over. It's not over. It's going to be with us forever because we failed to contain it, but there's going to be more COVIDs and deadlier COVIDs and all these other sorts of diseases, which is why it's so fascinating and so important that we now have a technology to make vaccines and records amounts of short time. Our regulatory environment is not set for how fast mRNA vaccines can, can work. So I hope that's a good way to tee you up into the mRNA conversation and, and to ask you why you think that's such an important development in the context of the longevity things we're talking about. Yeah. And I, and I hope this part for, you know, the people that are listening, watching, um, I, I hope they haven't heard this yet. Um, mainly because I think everyone should know this. I don't think the medical community has done a great job of, of making this known. So everything that you said there, especially going back to SARS in, I guess, was it 2005? Mm -hmm. um, on November 16th in 2020, and the reason I remember it is it, it was definitely market-related, had an impact. Moderna's um, results came out on their vaccine. And it was 94.5% efficacy. Okay. That's November 16th. On January 11th of 2020, there hadn't been a case in the US yet that was documented. Um, we didn't even know what was going on. But on January 11th, the Chinese gave out and released the, the DNA of the virus. So they, they sequenced it and they gave it out to the world, January 11th. On January 13th, a new virus that had no one was ever working on. There was not a single person, to your point, like these are new viruses. So there wasn't anyone working on this particular virus. The drug which had 94 and a, or the vaccine with 94 and a half percent efficacy was finished January 13th, two days after China released the sequence DNA. 
if people don't know that or they don't believe it, they have to go read about it. And this is where you realize how far we are down the road now of every single disease. Mm-hmm. When you could have a virus which didn't exist and a time period that would normally take, forget getting the approval, which as you mentioned, the approval process takes a long time. To actually have a cure done that quickly, or at least a vaccine that would 94.5% affect efficacy to stop death, to have it a weekend later by a company that was not studying it is just unthinkable. And then to think that Pfizer came out and a whole bunch of others. And then it wasn't just the US, every country's coming out with different, it's going on around the globe. That is what's so important. The Manhattan Project that came involved there over the course of the next two years that I call it, where every scientist was exchanging data. When you go read that book I mentioned with Jennifer Dowda in there, the fact that CRISPR people were getting involved, like every scientist in all kinds of fields that had nothing to do with virus studies, they were joining in. I think I saw a poll that 32% of a survey of 2,500 scientists across non-intiviral things, they had joined in to do research on this. Everyone was fascinated with it. Everyone was locked in their house. They were doing stuff over the internet. You were doing stuff. I listened to podcasts. And if people want to really have an interesting kind of journey down what happened to the human body, uh, Zach Bush is a guy who does, who's an amazing polymath, uh, he talked about how the plow basically set off all of these things, including what you described, which is the plow expanded population because we learned how to feed more people. That led to animals and people coming more clumped together. The soil got ruined because to feed those people, we had to come up with things like Roundup. And it all gets related and all these things of switching viruses between animals. It's, it all directly relates back to the plow. So if you want to have kind of a sapiens-like journey uh, with a guy who can go through it, you can go listen to podcasts with him. If you haven't had him on podcast and you want to have someone on, uh, he, he's a brilliant person and he can talk about that story of the history of the plow. But when you go through this stuff and you think about what's happened and how quickly that went on, Messenger RNA and CRISPR, the ability of getting into at the molecular level, either gene editing or going into the importance of messenger RNA. And you go look at where this was 10 years ago, eh, probably more like 12. You realize this is all new science. And yet the discoveries are happening at such a rapid pace that the COVID situation of how quickly you can go from we don't know what this is to, okay, we have a vaccine. That should blow people's mind. It was the single most amazing thing. I can't think of anything I've seen where we solved the problem that quickly of a scale that Bill Gates had talked about. Everyone had talked about. We're all sitting at home and the vaccine was done two days before. It was done before we even knew what was going on. Yeah. Although, I mean, it it, it then becomes a, a problem of politics and execution and logistics. I mean, and supply chains, like all of these things are not set up for the rapidity of, of what you're talking about. And we saw that, I think, in the distrust towards the vaccine and, and mm-hmm. the fact that we had all these solutions and we still haven't been able to roll them out. And I, I mean, part of that might just be because COVID, I felt like COVID seems to be that sweet spot of a virus that was serious enough to cause real problems globally, but not so serious that people took it like seriously enough. You know, if, if it had been Ebola and people were dying in the streets, I don't think we'd have any anti-vaxxers. It was because it was that kind of sweet spot of it's bad, but it's not too bad that I think there was a lot of opposition. But to your point, now we have multiple variants and we don't have a system that can kind of leverage these things. But if we can get our act together, maybe we can get in front of some of these 
these viruses that are to come. If or, you want or, an analogy, or, or even just uh, even just like cure old ones. Like if you got rid of malaria in Africa, just think about the GDP growth you would add to Africa, just taking malaria off the table there. Yeah. The, the one thing I would say, Jacob, and this gets back again into rate of change. Um, rate of change is just not a second derivative thing, but friction exists in innovation. It always has and it always will. Meaning the idea and the, the dream of getting it out there is always, there's some friction to get it out. And it could be governments, it, it could be people using it, it could be capital not going to it. But I'll just give you an idea. Like when, when, when the iPhone came out, of course they knew they could be able to stream video on that at, at high def. But there were, the bandwidth wasn't there. We didn't have the infrastructure supplied on it. So, again, everything that people say that maybe they want to be skeptical, they want to be cynical, what I try to focus on is things that are sure things. There is no doubt in my mind that messenger RNA and CRISPR will be increasing parts of our life every single year for the foreseeable future. And what COVID did was accelerate that process. I know we're going to get into energy, but I'm going to make a very similar argument with Russia, Ukraine, accelerating innovation for energy to solve the energy problem. And that's not a topic that I would have said at the end of last year. So a lot of times what people have to recognize, this also goes, Russia, Ukraine had a huge impact on China. Uh, zero COVID had a huge impact on China. These are major events and major things that usually accelerate some kind of change or force change at a faster pace. And I think the, what happened with COVID accelerated the ability for CRISPR and messenger RNA to have an impact. Is it going to go light speed? No. Is it going to be increasing every year? Absolutely. I like to my, think of myself as a, a sort of an anti-millennial, even even though I am a geriatric millennial, if you look at the year that I was born. But I, I apparently I come across it honestly because I hear all this promise of the future and the vaccines and I want to stream it now. I, I want to be able to just get it right now. I don't want to wait for, for all these things to perfect the supply chains. Um, but let's um, let's uh, you, you got the segue there, right? Rather than me. Um, Let's talk energy and let's talk Russia, Ukraine and China uh, to kind of round out the the conversation, because um, like you said, that's the stuff that's actually present. I would actually tell you it's been remarkably refreshing talking to you because for the last 72 hours for me, it's been nothing but Taiwan, China, World War Three, South China Sea stuff. And it's nice to sit back and think of some of the amazing things that we're doing as a civilization rather than the stupid things. Um, but let's um, let, let's talk about the energy situation a little bit. I. I often joke when I'm talking to audiences, you know, 10 years ago, uh, when I was still fairly green and naive, and I was giving talks about the future of the world, I was talking about renewables and sustainability and how we needed to make the transition to sustainable energy. And now when I get in front of audiences, I have to say, I never assumed a people were going to listen and b that we were going to throw coal and oil and natural gas out with the bathwater. Like I thought there was going to be some time type of stable transition period. Uh, but apparently there wasn't, and we're going to see really high energy prices here in the short term. And to your point, Russia, Ukraine kicked it off. So um, why don't you just start off with giving us your sort of broad strokes on where you think energy prices are going here over the next year. And then maybe we can back into some of the the, um, the changes that are coming to global energy markets. All right. Well, first of all, I, I, I wrote a paper at the beginning of this year, um, and I the podcast... Um, and since I'm referencing all this stuff, before we get off of this, I'll, I'll make sure everyone knows where they can find any of this stuff because it is yes. on the website. Well, and, and just, Jordy, give me the links and we will put it okay. in, the, in the description of the podcast. So listeners, okay. you won't have to go anywhere. Just look at the description and all the things we talked about will be there. Easy enough. Um, I, I wrote a paper where it was titled, 
you know, or the the in the in there. I basically made the argument that for the next three to five years, I will re- re- remain focused on inflation. But I will I'm a deflationist at heart, which is because of the structural things I mentioned. Now, one of the one of the major reasons uh, why for the next three to five years, I thought we'd have higher than expected inflation was because of energy. Hmm. So going into the year, um, my focus was that energy would have to hit 300 to 500 to start to have the demand destruction that it would need. And the reason I came up with those numbers is that when people talk about the 1970s, what they don't realize is, you know, you're, you're talking about oil going up significantly. Uh, and when I mean significantly, you're talking about equivalents in today's oil of probably 2500 for it to go to, to match up with what happened during the 70s in terms of the oil price rise. Now, I didn't think we could get up there without it totally destroying the, the globe because of the structural issues that exist that make it much more challenging. But I did believe for a variety of reasons that nominal GDP was going to stay higher for longer and nominal GDP is the biggest driver of demand for oil. Now, four things have changed this year. And so the way that I, I talk about the investment style that not only the firm has, but the way I approach life and everything else is in a very Bayesian framework, which is I have a view. If new information comes in that changes that view, then I'll alter it and decide that that's not what's going to happen. So there are four major things that happened this year that completely changed my long-term target on oil, which is why I'm saying now, and I said it on the podcast that we did this week, oil may have made its high. That may be it. We may not get above where we were. Now, I don't think that's going to happen, but I think there's a really good chance. And these are the four things that happened this year. And this will give people insights into how to think about, like, as a macro person, you change your mind. Hmm. I expected the Fed to raise rates this year and to be uncertain about their path. Well, they've done that. But what they did differently than what anyone expected, myself included, was they went from inflation is transitory to, oh, we have structural inflation. And they did it overnight. And they told everyone they're going to raise until they kill inflation. Well, inflation is a lagging indicator. So if you're trying to kill a lagging indicator, by definition, the market's going to say you're going too far because you don't actually know how far you have to go to kill the demand side. So the Fed raises rates. They start to get more aggressive in in May, uh, in, in the May period in terms of talking. June, they do 75. July, they do 75. But what happened well in advance because of the jawboning and them saying we're going to go really bad and threatening the market is mortgage rates, 30-year fixed rate mortgages, and uh, investment grade yields went up to the highest level in 12 years. Now, the economy has been driven on low in interest rates. So forget how much they move short rates. You had rates on the most important part of the economy, corporates for hiring and making money, and then the housing market, both of them went up to levels. And that meant the Fed was a different thing. So that's going to kill demand. Second thing is with the housing market going up, I thought housing coming out of COVID was in a structural bull market. I wasn't expecting 20% a year gains, but I was expecting 6 to 8% a year gains. And the reason was because I thought the Fed was going to keep rates lower than inflation and be slow to move. But by moving mortgage rates up to that level, they kill affordability and house prices start coming down. Now, all of a sudden, uh, over the last two months, we've seen all the data on the housing market start to go through it. And what people don't understand, one of the reasons that oil sensitivity to housing is so important is because when you buy a house, instead of renting an apartment, you're talking about a lot more space. You're talking about a lot more furniture. You're talking about a lot more heavy things. And we just went through a 10-year process where we not only had fracking on the supply side, 
but we had no housing market, meaning it was very slow moving. People still had negative equity in their home post 2008. Mm -hmm. So although I think the housing market is going to stay steady and I don't expect a collapse, I do think the amount of moving is going to be done because if you sell a house now with a mortgage at two and a half percent, and you go buy a new house, well, your mortgage is going to be reset now to five and a half, six percent. This is going to change a lot. It's going to freeze people in their homes more. They still have positive equity, but you're going to see that start to shrink. So the housing market changed overnight because of the Fed. The yeah. third one is Russia invading Ukraine. This is a really important one. And initially people were like, well, this is going to be mean we're going to have a shortage of oil. What it has done is done exactly what I thought had to happen in oil in a separate part of the market. So I said I thought oil needed to go to three to five hundred. In equivalent terms, what has gone to three to four, five hundred is gas prices in, in Europe, power prices. That is the issue. What we have done with Russia, Russia is one about their economy is about less than a trillion dollars now. Mm-hmm. Europe's economy is close to 20 trillion. So a one trillion dollar economy is holding hostage on the European economy. And Europe can't grow if their power prices are high. So what is Europe responding with? Uh, they're rationing energy usage. So the Germans are saying we have to ration, you have to cut down on demand by 15%, like all kinds of stuff that is sending EU into a recession. But there's one other important point. The reason that oil would go to 300 to 500 and it would be a positive is because that would speed up innovation. The higher, the only thing to make oil prices go down is higher oil prices. Well, energy prices have gone higher. They've just gone higher in Europe. And I believe the reaction function from the globe is we have to get away from Russian oil, which means we need solutions to clean energy faster than what it was. So that's why I call this moment more like the COVID moment where you're going to have more and more people, smart people leaving the technology area and moving into this because there's a tremendous amount of demand. And more importantly, when people and capital are being thrown in something just like in crypto, those are the markets that you want to invest in. So I think there's going to be a solution to energy much faster. And that doesn't mean it's going to happen this year. It doesn't mean it's going to happen next year. But it probably takes something that would take five to seven years and moves it up to three to five. And the way that I view markets is the market starts to discount that reality way before it becomes known. If everyone goes back to 2010 and realizes that fracking had basically been accelerating at that point, but the market didn't come comfortable with fracking as a potential technology, until two years later. And that's when we started to see the weakness in oil. So I think we're front loading the innovation side up. And finally, the other thing for energy, zero COVID has been a disaster for China on one important front. And I've tweeted about this, I've written about it. China's in a a very, very unique situation. So I spent from 2007 to 2015, I traveled to China twice a year for two weeks each time. So I spent a month of my life over in China each of those years because I wanted to get to know the way the place worked. The energy usage in China is one of the most interesting things. They have been the global global kind of consumer, extra consumer of oil. And one of the major reasons is because they reached a point where they can't use more coal, partly because it's just difficult to get, partly because of the climate change thing, but mainly because people were starting to get very sick from the pollution and they needed to focus on it. So they had made a dramatic shift towards more oil and they had been the oil consumer, the marginal oil consumer of the world. What has happened with their zero COVID policy and the Russia-Ukraine situation, for the first time, they've lost confidence of the locals. So remember, China is a push-button economy. If they want the economy to grow, they release some fiscal spending, they give some money out to people, they get their GDP very quickly. It's not working this time. And the reason it's not working is because people can't make long-term purchases for two major reasons. One is 
they have no idea if they're going to be in lockdown three months later. So why would they go buy a house or do anything that's going to put them in a fiscal situation? They have no idea what they're doing with the housing market. So they've lost the housing side. So if you go through and look at the data, they're giving money to the Chinese people. They have cash. They're not spending it. And so I've talked about John Maynard Keynes' animal spirits. Like they're in a depression in terms of the way they're, they're uh, the local average person is feeling towards the government. But the second thing is with Russia invading Ukraine, you brought up the Taiwan China situation. People have seen what happens if you invade a country. They have now the example of, well, your stock market's going to collapse. Everything in your country is going to collapse because we're going to take you off the global, the global capitalist system. If China decides to invade Taiwan, why would why would you be making long-term investments as a Chinese local? So they've got this very complex situation. No one agrees with their zero COVID policy. That's creating a problem. And then they've got the issue of the Taiwan situation. And with Nancy Pelosi going there, it doesn't add to the, the you know, like you said, we're talking about World War III. We're back in that mode again. And so long-term purchases are not there. And you've reached a point in Europe and in China where demand has to remain slow, no matter what happens. It has to remain slow but until we get where the power situation, uh, we're entering winter, so the gas situation is going to impact oil. There's been a negative correlation between crude oil and gas prices in Europe. As gas prices in Europe have gone up, crude oil has gone down. Until that relationship breaks, what I don't, which I don't see happening, what I said on my podcast and what I'm saying to people, it would not surprise me if oil went down into the 70 you know, to 80 area on Brent crude and WTI mainly because I just don't see the demand side coming up in any big way. And in the U.S., with rates where they are and the Fed continuing to tighten and QT in place, I don't know where this acceleration of growth demand is going to come from. And you've seen U.S. production numbers have gone back higher. So you've kind of reached this point where the trade's unwinding, but I think there's probably more weakness to come uh, in oil just because I can't see a positive scenario coming out of this right now. There, there's so much to unpack there, and I'm going to make you promise to come back on the podcast very soon to really hack into all of these. But I don't want to leave without without talking about these things for at least 10 minutes here or so. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I couldn't agree more with you on the points that you made about Europe. And I, I think people still don't quite get this. People are still incredibly bearish on Europe. They think that Europe is up the creek without a paddle, as we used to say back on the farm. Um, and, and yes, they are. But exactly to your point, that's probably what's going to spur major innovation. I don't know if you saw today. It's, it's, it's August 4th today we're recording. Spain ordered that um, all shopkeepers should turn their lights off at night and that you can only set your AC down to roughly 80 degrees Fahrenheit and you can only have your heating up to 66 Fahrenheit during the winter. Uh, Germany and the Netherlands said we're turning off all the, the lights that light up the historic buildings in our cities. Um, why were the lights still on if we're really in an energy crisis? Like there is all of this extra energy demand that is literally not like you don't need it that I think Europe's actually going to be able to eliminate. So that's the first point. And the second point, this is something that Gary Golden, who's a futurist who's been on this podcast a couple of times, who's he's converted me to hydrogen, but he's not just converted me to hydrogen. The Europeans are all in on hydrogen. If you look at who has patents for hydrogen related energy technology, it's the Europeans. If you look at spending on hydrogen, it's the Europeans. And I think part of that is they have all this natural gas infrastructure. The one energy solution that scales that you can use your previous infrastructure for is this sort of hydrogen technology thing. So one of the things I'm seeing from a macro perspective, and I wonder if you feel this way, it's it's really two things. First of all, I think we're moving away from the sort of globalization of energy. I think we're going to be in this paradigm shift where different parts of the world are relying 
on very different things for their energy matrix. So in China, maybe it's going to be nuclear and maybe Europe is going to be hydrogen. And in the US, we have so much natural gas, maybe we're just going to twiddle our thumbs and be with natural gas. The point there is we're not going to be talking about a single barrel of oil the way we talk about it now, being priced everywhere the same and everybody being part of a global market. But the second thing is, I think you're right. I think Europe's about to really go in on innovation from an energy perspective and i expect them to lead on a new class of energy things and that makes me bullish that that makes me think that now is the time to actually be in in front of europe so why don't we just talk about that for a second and then we'll hit the china animal spirits thing and, and close off how do you feel about hydrogen europe energy Did, was there anything wrong in what i said there or, or are we on the same page no i'll give you an anecdotal story which uh i i hadn't thought of until you said it um before COVID, and I think this was probably October, November of 19, a friend of mine came in um, because I was talking about oil. So this is before COVID, and I was I, I was focused on the fact that I think oil's going to head up now to a, a huge level. Tech, there'll be a, the next rotation into commodities out of technology because uh, there is a historical relationship between innovation and, and energy. I, I mean, to have innovation, you need power. Mm -hmm. um, so there's times where technology underperforms. And I, when I was speaking or presenting at Marco's conference in March, my presentation was on these long term cyclical swings between investment in energy or investment in innovation. Now, there's a, a, a change point here where if you think about the fracking point again, we had technology underperforming commodities from 2003 to 2008 as crude went up to 150. Then you get a peak there and then the next technology innovation software comes in and commodities are crap and you've got to go. And if you take the 90s, Netscape comes is born <laughs> and you've got the rise of tech into 2000. And what happened? Oil ends up, you know, sub $10, Russia defaults and everything goes on. So each period of time, there's this swing between energy and technology and they're linked. Where's the money going? Well, right now, the money and the innovation is going to go there. So this friend that came in in 2019 he had been part of the fracking revolution. We worked together in derivatives at Morgan Stanley. He left the industry after the great financial crisis and went to a company, I think in Colorado, and he was at one of the original places of fracking. So he comes into my office. He's been reading, my, seeing my webinars, talking about oil going well above 100, and he wants to talk about it. So we're talking. He's Canadian. And he says to me, by the way, Jordy, uh, the only reason oil is going higher is because of ESG and the fact that there's no investment dollars. But more importantly, the government's not investing in any of these. They're not allowing anyone to do it. He goes, I'm involved with hydrogen right now. I can tell you the entire energy problem is solved with hydrogen. They just won't allow it to happen. He's talking about how Germany is closing all, has closed all its nuclear plants since Japan's accident. We're going through and like governments have screwed this up. We need, and he said to me, governments need to reverse. And if they go the other direction, I'm telling you, the innovations are already there. So to your point, same way I said about the vaccine, I think people are underestimating the amount of innovation that has already been done over the last decade that's in the final stages. And if you throw more people and money at it and the governments reduce the regulations and accelerate some of this stuff, I absolutely agree with you that it's going to happen faster. And hydrogen is the one that my friend said. So I, I, I'm, I will never claim uh, in any way, just like I'm not a medical expert, I'm not an energy expert. I'm a macro person who uses the Internet to learn lots all the time and go down <laughs> rabbit holes. Uh, I talk to smart people like you do. Uh, I believe that uh, the solutions that you mentioned are going to happen. 
And oil is probably the most important thing to get off of in the globe for a variety of different reasons, but that has huge implications for the equity market. And I tell everyone in our, our, our firm right now, equities have bottomed. Um, and if I gave you, you know, I know this is not a, a markets thing necessarily, but June 13th was the peak in gas at the pump. Uh, June 14th was the peak in two-year rates. June 15th, the Fed raised 75 basis points, which will likely be the largest rise that they do. Um, they did another 75, and now they're forecast to do 50 in, in the next one. And the bottom in the equity market uh, happened June 16th, and it happened at a level of 36666. Um, in 2009, we bottomed at 666. Uh, there's some nice symmetry there, but the most important thing with kind of joking about that. I believe if a peak in oil did go, we're actually starting a new bull market. And you're not going to hear people say that. And that's been what I've been tweeting about and what I've been doing my podcasts on. I've been bullish. I think the second half of the year is going to be better. But I think your point is, if we deal with the energy problem, people are underestimating the importance of it. And this means that Russia-Ukraine actually is a mini positive thing for the world. I think it has put restraints around China and their ability to act geopolitically because they're going to end up in a similar situation as Russia and they got to see it play out. At the same time, you're having Europe getting off of Russian you know, stranglehold and that can only be positive for the world in my opinion. Yeah, well, let's pivot to China for the last word. Um, and, you know, we've only got a couple minutes here. So let's view this as sort of the teaser for, for our, whenever our next conversation is. Hopefully it's soon if, if you'll come back. I hope you've, I've had a great time. I hope you've had a uh, good I'll time. I'll be back. back. <laughs> All right. Well, um, when we were talking to prep for this podcast, I was feeling extremely bullish about China. Um, since then, the real estate stuff has scared me a bit. Um, Rob, who's who's a weekly uh, does our weekly market roundup on this podcast. Well, he's he's more scared than I am. I'm I'm still I'm not blinking quite yet. Uh, but uh, and he sort of just said in our, in our morning meeting uh, about how the Chinese are definitely the Chinese government is definitely trying to lead the horse to water, but it doesn't seem to be drinking quite yet. So there's two ways you could see that: either we're going to get the floodgates and mother of all stimulus here from China soon, and they're going to force feed the water down the horse's throat until it drinks. Or yep. to your point, uh, the average Chinese person really is doubting the Chinese Communist Party. So I'm still on, I think, stimulus land, and they'll buy some time. And that this this is not the this is not the day of reckoning for the Chinese economy. That's where I land. But I do see some of the warning signs. Um, how are you feeling today, August fourth, uh, about China? In some ways, this from a market perspective, macro perspective, getting this right, I think, is in some ways the most important puzzle piece in the macro picture. So you, you said something really important, and um, I think everyone, you and Rob, should definitely just always remember this. Uh, so the Chinese have been trying all different types of things, and they can't get they can't get the locals to be positive. That being said, the stock market has had a really nice rally uh, locally, and it hasn't come off yet. So I'm I'm less worried because I believed, and I wrote about this that. It will be more difficult to get the housing market going and much easier to get the stock market going. And that's really what animal spirits is about. You make financial assets go higher. The problem with housing is, again, it's a long-term purchase. Mm -hmm. It's an illiquid purchase. Liquid things that you can change your mind. If the government says, go buy it, it's like handing out money at the casino. And so they have that going. So there's still a positive. As long as the Shenzhen composite remains near the 200-day moving average, it's actually been a leader in front of the S&P because it bottomed and started to rally first. Yeah. 
Europe is starting to pick up. So the DAX broke through the 50-day moving average. So we kind of had this synchronized movement going, which is what China needed because they were the only one going up for a period of time there. So something positive has changed. The second thing is, and this is the part that I'm, I'm kind of referencing when I say remember this, all they have to do is basically go in and t- and fix the housing situation, not the housing builders. They just have to do something on the mortgage side, something on the, okay, you don't have to pay your mortgage for the next three years. Guess what? That may sound ridiculous. You know what the reality is? It's easy to do because we just went through a pandemic and everyone found different ways to get people out to spend. Mm. The reason people should not be worried is if China wants to get the locals to go out and spend, they just haven't hit the right thing yet. They will hit it. They won't allow it to collapse because we all know they've got a big event coming up soon. They're also trying to get it out there. All they have to do is something on the housing side that's more stimulative. And when you combine it with what I think is happening in the rest of the world and with oil prices going down, I actually think their situation is getting better by the day, even though the data is getting worse. And I agree with you. Nothing has happened. But I think they haven't done the bazooka yet in the housing side for people. And I think they're going to have to do it. And I think they're going to do it. Yeah, which is in some ways bad for them long term because at some point the Ponzi scheme is going to run out of steam. But like I said, I, I don't think it's anytime soon. And this might be actually the, the real leg up where you really want to be involved because of the level of the, at which they're going to have to support domestic markets. Um, hey, we've Jordan, never talked about this, Jacob, but I just want to make one thing clear because I've said it on my podcast. The entire fiat system is a Ponzi scheme, okay? <laughs> Meaning there's not that money, much money printed, but the total sum of all the assets in the world is in the hundreds of trillions and yet the total money printed is not even above 20 trillion so this is a levered ponzi scheme and china is just a part of the puzzle the u.s does this all the time too it's just that the chinese didn't want to do it they thought it was a joke what everyone's doing but the reality is (laughs) if you're going to be part of the capitalist system you have to do it only russia has succeeded in not participating in the capitalist system and you see where it's left them so i don't i i I think they're going to do it (laughs) yeah all right well Jordy, you're a busy man, and I thank you for your for your time. Uh, we'll have you back soon, and thank you so much. This was great. Great, Jacob. I look forward to the next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Cognitive Dissidents podcast brought to you by Cognitive Investments. If you are interested in learning more about cognitive investments, you can check us out online at cognitive.investments. That's cognitive.investments. Uh, you can also write to me directly if you want at jacob at cognitive.investments. Cheers, and we'll see you out there. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. This podcast may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.